Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze was created in 2020 to connect readers and writers during the COVID pandemic and has since developed into the online hotspot for literary news, festival and workshop broadcasts, and interviews with best-selling authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. Today's featured interview with nonfiction author Pete Davis made me think that maybe Janis Joplin was onto something when she sang, Freedom's Just Another Word for Nothing Left to Lose. Pete's best-selling book, Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing, is based on a speech he gave in 2018 that has been viewed more than 30 million times. Pete is a writer and civic advocate, the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network, and the founder of the travel company Getaway. In today's episode, he talks with AMB's thoughtful bro, Mark Cecil, about giving up FOMO, protecting your psychological immune system, and the surprising freedom of truly committing yourself to a person, career, or cause. So settle in and truly commit yourself to the next 45 minutes of fascinating conversation as I pass the blaze torch to Mark and his wise and thoughtful guest, Pete Davis. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to The Thoughtful Bro. Um, We are live here streaming on a mighty blaze as usual every Tuesday at 2. I'm talking about what makes great books tick, what makes great authors tick. Um, A few words before we get started. A Mighty Blaze, for those who may not yet know, is an all-volunteer initiative to help writers reach readers virtually in the time of COVID and beyond. Um, It's a changing world, folks, and book tours might not be coming back the way they once were. So virtually is now more than ever the way to interact with your favorite authors and hear about new books. And that is what Mighty Blaze is all about. Um, At A Mighty Blaze, we're not asking for any money. You can support us by just liking us, frankly, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. That's how we get traction and get more eyeballs on our interviews. So if you're new, just give us a like, give us a follow. Um, You can also subscribe to our uh, weekly podcast um, or our weekly newsletter on amightyblaze.com uh, just so you can hear about what's coming up that week. We have about six to eight new interviews with authors uh, releasing books um, every single week. Um, as I said, all of it is 100% free, but if you are in the mood to just reach for your wallet and buy something, this is the kind of thing you should be spending money on. Beautiful, important fresh books like dedicated by Pete Davis, which we're about to spend the next 40 minutes talking about. Um, what else? We will have time for audience questions at the end, of course. Um, so please just post them in the comments and, I'll, and they'll make their way to Pete and I. Um, a word about next week, we have on the debut author, Priyanka Chapanieri. Uh Priyanka's debut book, The City of Good Death, is getting all the buzzy literary praise. It's about the holy Indian city of Banaras, which is home to these things called um, death hostels, where people are shepherded through their final days safely into reincarnation and the life beyond. Um, but when guests in one such death hostel stop dying, the manager has to face the demons from his past. And um, it makes for a, it's a very philosophical kind of literary magical realist book. And it just won a book called The Restless Book Prize uh, for New Immigrant Writing. So that's next week, um, Tuesday at two, we'll have uh, Priyanka on to talk about the city of good death. And now 
onto this week. So Pete Davis is a writer and civic advocate in Falls Church, Virginia. He is the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network, um, which is a state policy organization focused on raising up ideas that deepen democracy. His Harvard Law School graduation speech, A Counterculture of Commitment, has been viewed more than 30 million times. Um, his new book, which is based on that speech, is called Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. It just got a beautiful review you in the New York Times today. Pete, congratulations on the book and welcome to The Thoughtful Bro. I am so glad to be here. Thank you, Mark, for having me on. Awesome, awesome. All right, folks, we're going to have an amazing discussion today. It's going to be a discussion about what it means to commit to things. It's going to be about how to make hard decisions and kind of the rewards of commitment, even when the going gets really rough. But Pete, why don't you just tell us in your own words, what is this book about? Yeah, this book is a right here, dedicated it is, as the subtitle says, it's a case for commitment. It's also a case, we like leading with the positive, but it's also a case against keeping your options open, the oft uh, given advice. And deep down, it's a tribute to the long haul heroes, the people who make commitments to particular things, particular causes, communities, crafts, institutions, places, and people. I wrote the book because as I was growing up, I kept getting this advice to keep your options open. You know, a lot of my fellow young people have gotten that advice too, as we were all growing up. Uh, you know, you're always told what you're doing now should be about preparing you for the future. You should choose a job that helps keep your options open for other jobs. Don't settle down in a place because you don't know all the places that are around the corner. Don't settle down with that person because you don't know all the people you're missing out on. Uh, never get too tied down. Um, but when I looked around at all the people that I looked up to as I was growing up, uh, I started noticing they were the people who didn't follow that advice. They were the people mm -hmm. who made commitments to long haul causes and fought for justice over decades, which is what it takes to actually move the ball forward on anything. They were the friends that, you know, said, you know, to their to their high school sweethearts, I think you're the one, let's do this, let's make this happen. They were the people who moved back to their hometowns or moved to a new town and decided to put down roots and dig in. They were the ones earning my respect and all my friends' respect. And so this book is a bit of an intervention saying, let's stop telling people to keep your options open. Let's do the opposite and make commitments uh, to particular things. Beautiful, yeah. There's a um, a pastor uh, at the church where my wife and I got married. Um, once gave this uh, sermon called Jomo. So FOMO is the fear of missing out, and Jomo was about the joy of missing out. And um, just kind of like you know, everybody knows what FOMO is. It's all people talk about. And he was just kind of making a case, which is in some ways very similar to the case you make here, which is the joy of missing out on all those other things and just focusing on the one thing at hand. Yeah, we talk about all the novel, you know, I, I, I start the book with giving browsing its due. You know, I say it's a case for commitment in an age of infinite browsing. Right. And sometimes it's good to keep your options open. And one of the joys of keeping your options open is novelty. You get to experience all these new things. But what I think your pastor was referring to was that there are deeper novelties at the other end of long haul. They're the sweetest novelties of all, not the novelty of the latest cool thing, but the novelty of, oh my gosh, I've never known what it's like to be a, a father of a five-year-old. Oh my gosh, I never know what it's like to really master baking. 
I never know what it's like to have, you know, I have a, I have a professor in here, uh, Susan Wessler, who talks about the joy of, she used to go to science conferences where she was scared about presenting. And then she saw her students, she had been stuck with her field long enough to see her students come to her and be like, oh, I'm about to present, I'm so scared. And she stuck with the field long enough to see her grand students, her students' students wow. start presenting at conferences. And she's and one of my messages of the book is, what is a deeper novelty than what Susan Wessler got to see her grand students present at the same conferences mm -hmm. that she did? Um, and that's just one example. Um, and that's that's the joy that comes when you are willing to miss out on some things. The novelty of renouncing novelty in a yes. way. Um, so one of the metaphors that I really like in the book um, is this metaphor of the hallway. And basically it's you're born, you're born in a room, you can enter the hallway and the hallway is filled with doors that go to other rooms. And, you know, quite obviously um, you're talking about the benefits and, you know, weighing the benefits versus the risk of entering a room or just staying in the hallway. Can you just talk about that metaphor a little bit? Why is that a powerful metaphor? Yeah. The, the reason I think that we're scared of commitment, the, you know, if, if commitment's so good, why isn't everyone doing it all the time? Why do you have to have a book written about this, Pete? You might be thinking. Right. The reason that we're scared of commitment is that the first act of commitment often is the scariest act. Like it starts with an incredibly scary thing, mm -hmm. which is closing all the doors that are required to commit to something. So imagine, you know, I talk about how, you know, when you're growing up, often you feel you, you, you're born with these inherited commitments, you know, the ones that are given to you. This is the place you live. This is the family you're with. This is the way we're expecting you to be. This is mm -hmm. your inherited, you know, religion, community, political belief, this, that, or the other. And often our 20s, but other people have it at different times, but that's the most common time. You have all these joyful moments of liberating yourself from the room in which you were born. It's like you've escaped the lock room, locked room. Right. And you might like some of it and keep some of it, but often the most transformative moments in your life are when you shed some of your inherited commitments. And so you find your, you've escaped the lock room, you celebrate that liberation, but now you're in a hallway with a thousand different doors to infinitely browse. And this book is about not, you know, there are all these wonderful books out there about liberating yourself from the locked room, but I felt like there needed to be a book also about there about choosing an affirmative commitment, making a voluntary commitment after you've shed your involuntary commitment. But yes. after you've browsed all those thousands of doors, if you're going to, not live in the hallway, but settle into a room, the first experience is gonna be the fear of saying, oh gosh, I can't go to this door, this door, this door, this door, if I choose this door. Right. But part of what the book's trying to say is that any of those rooms, even if it's not the absolute perfect room that fit, that maximize the perfect way it could fit with your exact being, any room, if you settle into it, if you set up shop there, if you set up camp there, is better than the coldness of living in a hallway. Mm. Um, and so uh, that's that's what I was trying to get at with that metaphor. It's powerful. I mean, it's sort of, I mean, I love metaphors and that is just a, a brilliant one. And it sort of kind of captures most of the idea of the book just right there. Um, so um, I wanna go into kind of, 
we're going to go into it later in this interview with some practical applications. Like if you're in a marriage you don't like, if you're in a career you don't like, if you're part of an institution that you think is corrupt, how does your how do your ideas play out in certain kind of like true true to life scenarios? We're going to get to that. But I, I just wanted for a moment just go back to the origins of this book, which is very interesting. Um, the speech you gave at Harvard Law School that's been viewed 30 million times and some. And I just so first. Can you like how did you get that speech? Like how did you like like had you why were you selected to give that speech first of all? Yeah, it's it's a very fu fun process. You know, at you know, Harvard in the movies is uh <laughs> you know, is thought of as I've seen legally blonde. Yeah, yeah, it's thought of as a place <laughs> where there's like grand people in robes right. who are like at the chalkboard saying students we shall teach you about, you know, Marcus Aurelius or something. Right. But actually the the normal day-to-day -day experience of there is pretty normal, but the graduation experience is the most Harvard-y experience. Like it's the most robes you, you get, you know, they run this contest with all the like 80 or 80 plus year old professors oh um, who are the judges where they have a contest that you go through to be the speaker. And I got very, uh, I was very lucky to have kind of gone through that process and they liked the message and I was able to give it. And then you get this, um, you get the speech training from this wonderful like professor of language. Mm -hmm. And he kept yelling at me saying, you must not use brittle Latin words. You must use deep German words, you know, like, um, like word, like strong instead of, uh, you know, indefatigable or something right, you know? right, and, right, and, yeah. and would like uh, go through word by word. But um, out of that came the speech and, and it was a really fun process to be a part of. But the spirit in which I like decided to write a speech about this is when I started thinking about what I wanted to say as I was going through the speech contest is, you know, I, I'm in my day job, I work on civic engagement and pol political and justice causes. And I was tempted at first to say, to talk about the specifics of my civic and justice causes. Mm -hmm. We need to fight climate change. We need to fight for racial justice. We need to fight for a deeper democracy. We need to, um, mm -hmm. we need to have a civic revival in America. But as I thought about it, I thought, what is the, I tried to think about like, what's the core, they call it the Archimedean lever. Like mm. what is the thing that you can pull that, with this platform, I can send one message to the world for five minutes. What is the thing you want to say? You don't want to waste it on a specifically sure. concrete thing. You might, you want to get deeper than that. And as I reflected on all these causes I cared about, the one thing that I felt was stopping them from being advanced to the level that they needed to be was that there was simply not enough people working on them. Mm -hmm. You know, the single best thing you can add to a cause is not a particular strategy. It's not a particular tactic. It's not a particular clever turn of phrase or rhetorical campaign. The best thing I noticed in all these causes and causes throughout history was the best thing you could add is a person, another person that's deeply committed to it. Another mm -hmm. person willing to put 5, 10, 15, 20 years down to fight for that cause. And so that's what I wanted to talk about with the speech is that if coming out of the speech, I can convince, nudge people a bit to have a little bit more stickier commitments to causes as big as mitigating climate change, to causes as small and particular as 
mentoring one kid or, mm -hmm. you know, helping your block. You know, I talked to a group in the book called Better Block and all they do is try to get you to stop, you know, try to advance all the things you care about at the big global level, just in your block. And, mm -hmm. um, and what I've discovered from all the people I interviewed in this book and all the people I've had as heroes, as I was thinking of writing the speech was that we totally underestimate the power of a single person or a single small group of people that are committed to put in a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years um, into a cause. Uh, that's the most important factor. And that's why I wanted to say it that day. And that's why I was excited to expand it into a book. Beautiful, beautiful. And I have to say, the we're gonna put a link to that uh, speech in the, in the chat, but um, your, oratorical ability is just incredible. And I'm just, I just, I just have to ask, it sounds like you got some uh, coaching on that, but I mean, this is, it was, it was an incredibly powerful and sort of virtuosic even delivery. And I'm just wondering, had you been trained before? Is this a talent of yours that you're nurturing? Yeah, so I actually, I did, I had a funny way I came up in speech making, which is I did stand up for 10 years. Oh my gosh. And what the the number one thing I think in speech making to get started is you have to get over being totally embarrassed mm -hmm, <laughs> of it. Mm -hmm. And they always say in stand up, after you've bombed for the first time um, uh, on stage and stand up, you've broken the seal and you have already faced the most embarrassing thing you could face right. going up in front of someone trying to be funny and everyone saying you're not. <laughs> um, and after that, you kind of get over the the fear of, of public speaking. So right. I would highly recommend someone if you want to dive into the deep end of getting over fears of public speaking, try to do stand up and and bomb on stage and fail. <laughs> nothing will ever be that bad again. <laughs> wow. But yeah, I mean, I would just anybody, you know, after you're done watching this, just go watch that uh, that speech. It's only about eight minutes long and it just packs a punch and it is really just incredibly moving and and just the oratory is just soaring at times um i know you love martin luther king and that came up so many times in the book and that's just sort of that that isn't a, an aspect of martin luther king that you really talked about but it's sort of like i couldn't help but think of him sometimes frankly um just the you know your kind of seemed natural ability uh to speak so just high praise on that in that regard i so appreciate that and, and if i could mark yeah. On Martin Luther King's speaking ability, you know, it's part of the message of my book. So one of the big uh, returning themes in my uh, stories in my book I talk about is yeah. how we process Martin Luther King as a hero for these big, brave moments. Like, right. you know, he gives the perfect eye of a dream speech exactly at the moment when he needs to. He faces down the fire hoses exactly at the moment um, that that's important. Um, but what I tried to say with him and with everyone else in my book all of those big brave moments are the result of day in day out week in week out right. year in year out work right. that built up to those moments and so right. even as speech making i've studied his speech making before if you read his early stuff uh like back in the late 50s early 60s before you know the i have a dream speech all of many of those riffs that he has, he all it's also a long haul hero story sure. where he had honed them at Sunday sermons over over the years to the point that it was secondhand. And actually his famous I have a dream speech riff is a great long haul hero story because he improvised it. Mm -hmm. um, it was not in his written speech, the riff. It was Mahalia Jackson in the back at the March on Washington saying, this speech is going pretty boring. 
tell them about the dream, do your best stuff. Why aren't you doing your best riff? And he was able to improvise such a beautiful, poignant, impactful riff because he had put in the work of doing long haul, uh, you know, preaching for the 10 years before that. Yeah. And so even in that, even in that compliment, there's, um, there's, uh, there's a story of long haul work being done. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I, and I, um, I am very much subscribed to this. I mean, I'm sort of like an easy, you're sort of preaching to the choir with this book. I mean, this is certainly something that I believe in, um, these kinds of long haul commitments and, and the fruits that they bear. Um, you know, one thing just on Martin Luther King, um, you know, you do talk about, you know, the, the, you talk about this way that like real, real commitment, real heroic commitment isn't really Hollywood ready. Um, you have, you know, it's not the, I have a dream speech. It's the like hundreds and hundreds of like tiny, tedious, community activist meetings that Martin Luther King ran um, on his own and that Hollywood would just have a complete nightmare trying to put on screen. Um, and like, I sometimes think about that myself. I mean, I think that if you really want to commit to something, you really have to be committed to the guts of the thing. And I sometimes think like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be president? But what do I really want? I just want to get up there and like have the bully pulpit and make speeches. I don't want to like campaign at like, you know, a Toyota dealership in, you know, somewhere in like Northwest New Hampshire I want to just get up there on national TV and do interviews on Sunday morning and, and so and give the State of the Union. But I think that like to really commit to something, it's those real tiny nuts and bolts that you got to love, right? Yeah, this great civil rights activist, uh, Ella Baker, called it spade work. She mm. said um, she, she once wrote a letter in the 1940s. Uh, well, and this is something we also forget about. Like, you know, you hear about the civil rights movement in the 1960s, but there are people putting in the work in the 30s, 40s, and 50s to yeah. clean that up. And she writes in this letter, I must, back to headquarters, I must leave now for one of those small church night meetings, which are usually more exhausting than the immediate returns seem to warrant. But it's a part of the spade work, so let it be. Yeah. spade work, you know, preparing the soil for action. You ask any gardener, it's not like you plant the seed and then there's a flower. It's, you know, you got to do the weeding. You got to do the loosening of the soil. Sure. You got to do the preparing the soil. You got to do the mulching around the tree. You got to come back and water. You got to tend to the, uh, you know, the clipping the right leaves before the flower comes. And yeah. um, that's all the spade work that goes into anything. And I'm talking about big grand things like causes right now, but you'll hear from anyone, you know, people who are mayors of a town, uh, you know, or reviving an institution or what y'all are doing with the Mighty Blaze. It's like, you know, it's cool, Mark, that you're hosting this now and you get to host this wonderful web show. But, you know, I saw in the 15 minutes before all the prep work that you had to go, you know, go into this, you had to send all the emails, you had to learn about the tech that went into this. Right. And that's, that's a project, even on the most personal level, raising kids. You know, you're all there on their graduation day having your big proud moment. Um, but think about all the times when, you know, you know, you're constantly encouraging them, you're you're raising them through all the years. I, you know, I, I haven't had kids yet, so I'm clearly can't even speak eloquently to it yet. Right. But um it's uh it's such a great example. Um right. so I want to talk about, you know, um, the nature of commitment. And I want to kind of like really dig into um, this, this idea of commitment uh, as you presented at the book. So so one, one thought that I personally have about commitment is that I find that when you commit to something fully, um, 
I want to try to be as concise as I can here. When you commit to something fully, it changes the circumstance. What I mean by that is, for example, I can just give you an example from my life. Like I quit my job a few years ago to pursue a career um, as a writer and an author full time. And I will just say, when I sort of put both feet in, as a friend of mine says, he's a musician, when you put both feet in, the universe notices. And what that means is like opportunities came to me that I didn't know existed before. Doors opened to me that I couldn't even see before. And this is because I have put two feet in. And I think when you put two feet into something, one thing it does, for example, is it signals to everybody else around like, oh, I see that he's serious about this. I see that he is dignifying this enterprise with his full commitment. This is worth it to him. It's worth it for him to take a big risk. And that opens people up. And I just think it's an interesting thing about commitment that once you commit, I think it changes the circumstances in ways that you could not see before. Would you agree? I totally agree. I have a whole section in the book that part, part probably the like deepest meat at the center of the book is, right. is about every commitment in, in some ways is a conversion. So we talk about, you know, big epic moments like getting married or converting to a new religion or coming out with as part of a big cause. But every single tiny commitment, when you put down roots in a place, when you decide, you know what, I'm going to follow this craft and I'm going to double down on this, um, it yeah. opens your world up. And I try to talk about in the book about, I try to unpack what are the different elements that go into that magic. You know, because you're talking about it, Mark, like it's magic. You put your, the, the universe listens. So what form does that take? So, you know, on a totally scientific form, there's this thing that the Harvard professor, uh, psychologist, Dan Gilbert calls the psychological immune system. So humans are very, very adaptable. Mm -hmm. We, you know, they, there's this famous study that's cited often, which is you ask people, if you won the lottery, would you feel good? if you were became a quadriplegic, would you feel bad? And everyone says, oh, I would be overjoyed if I won the lottery. If I was a quadriplegic, I'd be totally devastated. And then they actually interview uh, lottery winners and quadriplegics. And most of them, you know, lottery winners are slightly more happy. Quadriplegics have, are having slightly more difficult of a time, but totally less than we expect. Right. And that's because we have parts of our psychology that adapt to our circumstances. We start weaving new stories about what our meaning is. Mm. We start accepting our limits and stop striving for what we can't control anymore and um, start you know, adjusting upward or downward or wherever word um, to, uh, to uh, what our circumstance has given us. And, um, and, but the thing is they've done other studies where if you have some big thing happen, but it's reversible, the psychological immune system doesn't kick in. So Ooh. you need to have something that locks the door so you can turn off that part of your brain that's constantly searching for a better thing. I it's love it. You gotta, burn, you gotta burn the ships. You gotta burn yes, the ships. Yes, you have to burn the ships. <laughs> yes, I, I have an example in the book. My Probably my favorite interviewee is this wonderful woman, Amy Jones, who's a tattoo parlor uh, uh, a tattoo artist in my town. And I asked her, and I had interviewed her just to ask about getting tattoos because that's such a commitment to something. But then she told me her whole story about becoming a tattoo artist. And she had been dabbling in tattoo art for a couple of years. She was still wavering. What am I doing being a tattoo artist? Maybe I should be something else. And then one day she looked around and she said, 
I love being a tattoo artist. I want to double down on this and I need to force myself to do it. And so what she did is she got a face tattoo. Um, and, um, and she said to me, I got the face tattoo because the only business I can do after, you know, above the table <laughs> business I can do after getting a face tattoo is being a tattoo artist. And my message of this book, um, parents listening, don't worry, I'm not telling your kids to go get face tattoos, but <laughs> I am telling everyone who's reading this book, get a proverbial face tattoo. Mm-hmm. Make the plunge uh, yeah. that forces you a bit yourself that you you affirmatively commit to, mm-hmm. um, to go down a road because as soon as that happened, she described the exact psychological immune system thing. She said she woke up the next day and felt better than she ever felt because she knew what she was doing. She doubled down in getting her license and learning more and getting a chair at the shop. And that's what we can have um, in all of our forms perhaps yeah. with a, a less extreme version of, uh, of making a commitment, but uh, find, a, find an equivalent. Yeah, and it's just all that you just said is just such a brilliant kind of illustration of, of what I was talking about, just that you know, when, you, when you put both feet in, something changes and you see things the way you haven't before. And I love what you just said about how um, if you even think there's the slightest way that you can wriggle out of this, the change will not happen within you. Um, and so that's just, it's just a phenomenal um, thing to remember. Um, okay, I wanna dig in for the next few questions about um, you know, practical applications of this. Um, and I just wanna like pu- pu- push back on, on the commitment thing a little bit and just kind of hear you describe some more tricky situations. Um, so for example, I have a good friend um, who has been with somebody um, for about eight years and um, is resisting getting married. And um, he is unsure, and I think he will never be sure. Um, and he himself will even say that I don't think I will ever be sure. Um, and yet, you know, people are getting older, and you can't just kind of, you know, go on forever. And um, I just like, what would your advice to be be to this person who is just sort of like maybe eighty percent of the way there, and just feels they've hit a ceiling? Should they just go out and buy the ring or what? And tell me why. Yeah, so I want to start with a huge caveat on this question, which is I have a whole section in this book on in praise of quitting. (laughs) And for people that are in unhealthy relationships, either to a specific person or to a church or to a cause or an institution Mm -hmm. or even a community, um, I this is not really a book. I'm going to get to kind of the specifics of this question, but I want to say it because people kind of think in a similar way sure. uh, way with a question like that. This is not really, there's a bit in this book on how to stick with something for a long time, but a lot of it is about making that initial plunge. So, mm-hmm. you know, it might be above my pay grade and this book's pay grade a bit to talk about, you know, the exact details on figuring out if a relationship is healthy. And, <laughs> right. quit. and I tell stories about people who found their long haul journey right after quitting something that didn't feel alive anymore. Mm-hmm. So this is not a whatever you do, keep stick with it book. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a book that says if you never take the plunge in anything, I assure you it will be unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. So that is uh, that is where this goes in. But on that specific question, this is what I would say. Um, to your friend, the uh, there's this idea of the self that I call static and isolated. It's the idea that we form ourselves 
by a specific set of rigid characteristics about who we are that we painstakingly discover in the mm -hmm. first 30 years of our life or something. Mm -hmm. You know, I call it, I love the Lakers. I love the Rolling Stones. I am an electrician. I am the type of person who does this. I am, um, I, uh, I like sushi. I like going on vacations here. Um, and uh, that is like a rigid set of, a rigid self that's isolated and totally about you finding your own perfectly authentic self. Mm -hmm. And I believe that this conception of the self is part of what's preventing us from diving into commitments because anything outside of ourself will not perfectly fit any detailed, rigid conception of who we are. Mm -hmm. um, maybe one day the folks in Silicon Valley are gonna invent an AI that you know perfectly makes the sub 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 subculture that is particularly designed for each of us sure. and find the you know in the end if you want a person that perfectly fits you all you you can date yourself and be alone you know <laughs> uh, what i say is let's one way is to start thinking about yourself differently from static and isolated to dynamic and embedded mm -hmm. so what this means is our self is constantly changing and the way we discover ourself is through our relationships. You discover the full sense of who you are in relationship with other people. Our relationships have content to them. Um, mm -hmm. And so on the bigger level, and I'll get, you know, it's the hardest in terms of like interpersonal relationships. So I like starting with the easier stuff like causes and religions and communities you find out who you are by joining up with the cause that becomes who you are you move to texas you start loving tex-mex food you start going to the uh texas two-step dances at the local dance hall you start um having a certain way of talking you become a texan it's not that texas perfectly fit you it's mm -hmm. you made a choice to become a texan um you find a religion it is not a, or a church a faith community it's not None of them will perfectly fit all of your opinions, but you enter into a long, deep conversation and relationship with that faith community, and that gets you closer to a higher spirit. And um, in all of this, you know, I love this Bob Dylan quote in the Rolling Thunder Review documentary he made with uh, Martin Scorsese. He was asked, uh, they said, Bob, you left Minnesota and you went out to find yourself. And Bob responds, Bob Dylan responds, Nobody finds themselves, they make themselves. And that's exactly my point with dynamic and embedded self. Yourself is not revealed to yourself mm -hmm. until you take the plunge. So, as we look mm. at this question of your relationship, you will never know who you are with that person until you fully commit to them. Yeah. And if you're 80% of the way there, that is enough. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and yes. It, it, it goes back, Pete, to this sort of thing we were talking about earlier. It's a sort of paradoxical thing. I mean, what you're saying is another illustration of what we were talking about earlier in that, like, only when you burn the ships do you truly find out the situation, right? Yes. It, we talked about the psychological immune system of it opening itself up to you. And I loved your point, Mark, about how the other, the thing you're entering into relationship with, person or larger yeah. community, opens itself up to you as yes. well. Yes. Because... You might never know the level of vulnerability you'll reach um, 
until you've entered into a relationship with something. A town, you might walk through a neighbor, you know, I'm, I walked through, a I just moved in um, for good. I just put down roots in my hometown. And I used to walk through the neighborhood that I'm now living in. And I didn't know anyone. I only saw the surface level characteristics of this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I just walked through it. None of it revealed itself to me. I've recently put down roots here and decided I'm living here in the long run. And I'm starting to notice, oh my gosh, there are a lot of robins here, type mm -hmm. of bird. Um, oh, did you know that there's this crack in the street in this way? Oh, did you know that that person across the street shares this thing with me? It's all because I've taken the time. Once I put down roots, my whole way of looking at what I'm seeing is totally different because my mind is no longer searching for the next best thing. It's finding the joy and the magic in what I've decided to join up with. That's great. Okay, so we have a few questions and we'll get to those in a few minutes. Um, um, but I just had a few more questions of my own. So um, one is, um, you know, I had on the show uh, James Carroll last week. He's a National Book Award winner. He is a former priest. Um, he wrote a book called The Truth at the Heart of the Lie. Um, he talks about his like, profound, profound um, commitment to the Catholic Church and profound, profound disgust of the Catholic Church. And he's sort of in this limbo stage right now where he has effectively left the Catholic Church, but he has not given up on it. And, you know, you, to, to take another example from the headlines, you have a situation with someone like, say, Lynn Cheney, who is has profound problems with the Republican Party that she and her family have devoted um, generations to, and yet she is not willing to leave it. Um, she's trying to stay in it. And, you know, there, there's sort of, while meanwhile, others in the GOP have said, I've had it, I'm out of here, and so on. So I am not trying to open a discussion about faith or politics per se, but I'm using those as just two examples that people will understand. Uh, somebody who is just on the fence in terms of, you know, you talked about this part of your book in praise of quitting, um, just sort of when is the time to quit and when is the time to double down and reform um, a relationship, an institution, a career from the inside? First, I'll say, you know, it is the people that are embedded in, in an institution and then try to reform it from the inside that often are the people that make the most change mm. uh, in society, in that institution. Mm. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has called it generous orthodoxy. Mm. Others have had other phrases for it. You know, it's um, it's this is what union organizing is, you know, they, union organizers don't just protest, you know, union organizers will tell you, you get a bunch of class, you know, classic usual suspect activists to protest outside of a corporation on one hand, mm -hmm. and you get a bunch of workers to be organized and go on strike of that organization, corporation on another end, mm -hmm. you definitely want to bet on the embedded workers that are going on strike over the usual suspect activists right. that right. are um, protesting from the outside. And that's because, and that's why, you know, when someone who's respected within an organization speaks out against it, that's when they're, why they're, it's always a news story and it's listened to more when a general says the Pentagon is doing something wrong or a dean of a major university is saying the university system needs to change. Mm -hmm. It's because they have the bona fides to have that community listen to them. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of, you know, even this example I've been citing earlier, uh, Martin Luther King, the what the Montgomery bus boycott was, was an uprising of the residents of Montgomery 
from the inside saying they want Montgomery and Alabama and the South and the whole country as a whole from that one city right. to be different. It was not a bunch of people coming in from the outside saying Montgomery change, Montgomery change, though right. they were helped by that. Uh, it's usually a partnership with the outside and the inside. Um, the So I would say for those who have it in them to remain parts of organizations and reform to the inside, that's the only way we're gonna have them change. I would never from my place of privilege tell someone that if the harm being done to you specifically or your family or those you love by an institution um, uh, is more than what you think is your shot at reforming it, uh, uh, I wouldn't tell you stick with it for the cause. Right. But um, for those that do have it in them and feel like they're they're able to do that and they have you know either uh, they have the capacity to do that, um, I would recommend that's the only way it's going to change. I'll just tell a personal story. You know, I I don't want to give advice. I want to just speak from personal experience. You know, I have a similar thing with James Carroll. Is you know I don't agree with every. I'm a Catholic and mm -hmm. I was. Sometimes it's hard to say you're Catholic because there's a lot of things that the church does that um, I, do, I, I would say the, the official bureaucratic church does that really do not sit right with me. But I know that if I quit, other pe the only people that will be left are the people that just want to go along completely with that mm -hmm. direction that I don't like. Mm -hmm. Even in an institution um, in politics today, you know, I have the opposite of Lynn Cheney, which is you know, I I um I am a proud Democrat, and I like saying it. I'll say it on this interview, even though that might alienate some people watching. <laughs> um, and I'm from a family of Democrats. The Democratic Party does a lot of things that I'm bothered by. Often, you know, has a lot of uh, spinelessness problems that I'm bothered by a lot. But you know, the people that keep politics churning are often the people that show up to the local meetings of the Democratic Party, put in the work to get people elected and then have those people listen to them um, and have the ability to be insider reformers. And I think some of us need to not just, not just say, you know, um, uh, wash our hands of everything and say, I don't wanna be touched by this messy thing, uh, but, you know, get in there and be involved in a thing and make it better. And for those who wanna even quit, you know, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party and form a third party, what I would encourage with that is actually do it, you know, join, right. do the long haul work of doing the institution mm -hmm. building. Don't just sit happy that you, you know, the score, you know, um, and that's why I'm also inspired by the people who have fully quit the major parties and, but are putting in the long haul cause work or institution building work right. to actually do long haul reform from the outside. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to take some questions from the audience, but while my producer puts those up, I mean, I would just say like one of the big things that I just hear in what you're saying there is um, we've said a lot of great things about commitment, but another thing that's implied in what you just said is the only way you ever gain true power or true influence, if that's what you want, is through the long haul, um, is by becoming deeply, deeply, deeply embedded. That is that is the best way to get a voice for change. Um, okay. So um, here's a question, a very common dilemma. If a child signs up for an activity and doesn't want to do it anymore, when is the time to allow to allow him or her to quit? Well, the first thing I'll say about this is very exciting that the child signed up for an activity. <laughs> and I, I talk about in the book that we often that one of the most important parts of education when it comes to commitment mm -hmm. is helping students uh, and children attach to things. Mm 
mm-hmm. um, to, to learn not just for the specific substance of the thing they attach to, but to learn the art of attaching, to learn that mm-hmm. it's not always about you. It's when you learn the piano, you have to be not disciplined by your piano teacher, but disciplined by the piano itself. Mm. You know, you're not immediately going to be able to play the song you want. You got to put in the work and see what happens. If you join a team, you're not going to always get your way. You're going to have to learn how to be part of the larger team. If you take on a teacher, an elder or a hero, um, you're going to have to look at yourself through the eyes of someone outside of yourself. And all of those are part of the deep virtues of that help you with committing. So now the question is, should they stick with it or not? So I guess the balance that I talk about a lot in the book is you have to find out with whether you are quitting because boredom, distraction, and uncertainty, like the monsters along the path of your commitment journey that are speaking to your short-term self and not your long-term self, mission creep, grass is always greener syndrome, um, FOMO, the fear of missing out on the hot new thing, regret, you know, the, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that. Um, you have to identify if it's that, really think critically and, and call it out, you know, help a kid see, you know, let's talk about uncertainty, let's talk about regret, let's talk about missing out, let's have this be a learning moment about distraction. But if after having that process, they still just don't feel alive to the thing anymore, Maybe it's not the right thing because the goal is to have something that I, I sometimes say it's it turns on the song in your heart. It lights a spark of the divine inside you. And the most important thing is to have um, is to have a kid find a couple of those things in general. So don't just stick with, you know, I talk about a, a commitment is like a relationship and a relationship is like a living thing. If a living thing is sick, you might want to help heal it. Yeah. Sometimes the plant will be languishing and not flourishing. Um, and you have to know how to deal with the times when it's languishing. Sometimes it will be boring and not fun. But I always say, if a thing is dead, it's dead. And it's kind of morbid to play act the rigid routine of a thing just because I am committed to it. Mm-hmm. So if it's still alive and it's still alive in your heart, um, keep doing it. But after you've been through the check of oh no, it's not just the distraction, boredom, uncertainty, grass is always greener, regret, missing out. Maybe it's time to go back to browsing, leave that room, go back to the hallway and try to find another one that might be worth the last longer. Great, all right, let's do a few more questions. Um, This is from Margaret, thank you for this question. Uh, What does Pete suggest as daily practice for working yourself up to risks like this, making big decisions like this? I have a, so there's, there's different parts. So there's a day, there are practices for after you've made a commitment. So I'll talk about one of those and then I'll go into like practices to help make a commitment. So after you've made a commitment, one of my favorite, uh, my two favorite practices, one was to have a totem of why. So it sounds strange, but why, as in like the question, why, Mm -hmm. um, at the beginning of a commitment, you're going to do your future self a favor. If you think about, if you think really hard and explicitly about, and by explicitly, I mean, write it down or tell someone or say it to yourself, um, why you are setting forth on this commitment. This is why organizations write mission statements. This is why weddings have vows. 
um, it's because you are trying to explicitly state your why. And mm -hmm. when you bring in a community through one of those ceremonies of commitment, you're actually saying, hey, everyone, this is my why. I'd love you to remind me of this when it gets hard. And one of the things I recommend to people is return to your story of why. Um, and when it's getting hard, you know, go back to it and say, you know, is this, does this why still sing to me? Do I need to take a break from the daily work of this commitment to go sit with my why for a while? Do I need to upgrade it a bit? Or do I need to just be rejuvenated by that original past self that's egging me on? Mm -hmm. um, and th that's one of them. The other is on sticking with commitments is I heard from this wonderful uh, public interest real estate developer. He runs this thing called the Incremental Development Alliance, which is all about pushing developers from doing giant big box development, but to doing small, loving, long-term development, one little piece at a time. And he says, um, and he's his work is totally long-term commitment, you know, to do a development project in a city. He sometimes tells his, uh, his team, we're at the bottom of the ocean and we're trying to get to the moon. So first we got to put on our flippers, then we got to go to mm -hmm. the surface, then we got to build our rocket pad, then we got to build our rocket, then we got to fly to the moon, then we got to land on the moon. Totally long haul commitment. And I ask him, Monty, my, his name's Monty Anderson. How do you stick with this for the long time? And he says, it's really important to have emotional simplicity, to not have it be huge ups and huge downs mm -hmm. and have the discipline of um, trying to have it be more even keel because you're going to get burnt out by the ups and downs, not by the even keel. So mm -hmm. I go, okay, how, Monty, how do you have the even keel? And he tells me, when I get up, I get humble. And when I get down, I get grateful. Mm. When I'm up, I think about dust passes the glory of the world. This is, you know, you're never up forever. When I have a really hard day, I get grateful for the shoes on my feet, the clothes on my back. Mm -hmm. And I think about that like a emotional HVAC system. Mm -hmm. When it's getting too hot, let's cool it down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> cool, let's heat it up. You know, I talked to Evan Wolfson, who was on a 32-year walk to pass marriage equality. Mm -hmm. He wrote a third-year law school paper on the constitutional right to same-sex marriage. He was laughed out of the room. It was considered this totally off-the-wall crazy paper. Mm -hmm. He marches for 32 years along with thousands of others to the point that it went from the crazy uh, smallest form of legal writing, a law school paper, to the Supreme Court decision, the highest mm -hmm. form of the land. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, how'd you do it, Evan? And he said the same thing. I was happy sometimes, I was sad sometimes, but I was never that surprised or disappointed because I knew this was going to be a long walk. So that right. daily practice of having that when you're up, get humble, when you're down, get grateful can help. So I that. yes, I and so what about when making a commitment? I talk about, you know, my biggest advice on decision making is I would, I love this idea from the Jesuits called Ignatian discernment. And there's a big, big, simple idea at the center of this. They, they go into at length about it and you can read more in the book, but the big idea at center is we often when making decisions, think really hard about the decisions. Like we're like option one, let me really consider it. Option two, let me really yeah. consider it. Option three, let me really consider it. And what they challenge you to do is to think about yourself well pre presented with the options. Mm -hmm. Don't just analyze the options and take your emotions and your sense of inspiration out of it. 
present yourself with the options, really sit and envision taking the options and then see how you feel. And so I, that's my kind of practice on making decisions, which is right. do all the rational pro con lists you want. That might help, but definitely take time to sit with the reality of taking the options and see, they say desolations or consolations, a very Jesuit phrase, but are you happy? Are you sad? Are you feeling closer to purpose or further away? Are you feeling more inspired or uninspired as you imagine yourself taking each option? My friend, uh, John has this great way of putting it. He, uh, when people ask him for advice, he just tells them one option. So when they say, should I move to Philadelphia or Atlanta? I got this job in Philadelphia. I got this job in Atlanta. What should I do? Um, he just says, oh, do Atlanta. And then they're shocked because like usually when people give advice, they usually sit with you in the indecision, but he just says, just do Atlanta, do it. And then what he usually finds happen is they have an emotion in response to that. So they say, oh, I would never want to do that. I definitely, my family's in Philadelphia. I want to stay with my boyfriend in Philadelphia. And, um, and then he goes, okay, Philadelphia it is. Yeah, and right. <laughs> is that when something becomes a little bit more of a reality, um, suddenly you, you reveal part of your inner um, heart to it. That's great. That's great. Oh, this is so wonderful. Um, I had a few more questions, but um, we're, we're sort of running low on time here. Um, one more question I just want to ask you quickly, if you could just give me like a kind of 30 second or a minute long answer to it is just um, one of my favorite books the last five years and something that, you know, as a long hauler myself, I really um, just loved and I felt I'd always lived this way. And here's a book saying there's science behind it is the book Grit by Angela Duckworth. And uh, Angela gave you a great blurb for this book. And just kind of in a 30 second soundbite, tell me how these two books sort of dovetail with each other. Yeah, so what's wonderful about Grit, Grit is all about the, uh, the it's in praise of sticking with something. And yep. it, it, it's very similar to this book. It says, you know, it's it's part of what the Stanford lecturer Ed Batista says, we should focus less on making the right decision and more on making sure our decisions turn out right. Mm -hmm. And that's what Angela Duckworth is talking about. You know, after you've decided to do something, stick to itness, mm -hmm. which she calls grit, um, is she she gives all of the psychological and educational studies on the mm -hmm. power of stick to itness. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think about this book a little bit like a sequel to Grit, because I have a little bit in the book on how to stick to it, but it's mostly about leaving the hallway, making the choice to pick a darn movie mm -hmm. when you're on the menu screen, pick a room off the hallway, commit to something instead of just infinitely browse. And so in some ways, this book is about making that initial decision and then grit is about the power of sticking with it. So if yeah. you kind of follow the message of this book, you make a choice and then you follow the message of Angela Duckworth's book and you stick to it, good things might come. Great. That's beautiful. I, I totally agree. I think those are great. These are great books to, to read together. Um, I believe in the message. I think it's an outstanding message. And I'm just sort of shocked that this message isn't out there more. And I just feel like it, it, it's true that it's uh, you're sort of in a market where this is not the prevailing wisdom. Um, and yet I think, you know, as somebody who lives this way myself, I feel like it's absolutely um, true and just so nourishing to read about it. Um, look, as we wrap, I always ask my um, authors who come on the same question, which is that if you had an ideal reader for this book, just imagine somebody who is kind of understanding this book just the way you wanted it to be understood, getting every reference, um, hearing this, being changed by this in just the way um, you'd wish in your wildest dreams. So they get to the end of the book, they close it, and they're sitting there. Tell me in a word or a phrase, what is the feeling that you have left this reader with? 
I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to do two. Okay. Okay. Because it's it's important and it's connected. Gratitude for the long haul heroes that gave them the precious things in their and our collective lives, and determination to join them among the dedicated. Beautiful gratitude and determination for the long haulers. I love it. I love it. I feel inspired. I want to go like do something right now. I just feel full of energy. Um, so folks, um, Pete Davis, this book is amazing. Read this book. It's actually short too, by the way. You could read this in one sitting. It you could read, read it in a day. You could read it in a day. You do not have to be worried about the commitment to reading this book because it won't take very long. <laughs> um, but it's, it's very, very inspiring. It's so well written. Um, I love the message. Um, Pete, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. And what you all are doing with the Mighty Blaze and the Thoughtful Bro is a great example of institution building that is an exemplar of the spirit of this book. So I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. Hey, we are all in at a Mighty Blaze. Um, <laughs> so we'll be here next year and the year after when your next book comes out. So folks, thank you for joining the Thoughtful Bro this week. Thank you again to Pete Davis. Um, next week, as I said, we'll have um, the debut author, Priyanka Chapaneri on to talk about her book, The City of Good Death. Uh, it's getting a lot of praise and already winning some awards. Um, so we'll see you then, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. My debut novel, Herrick's End, is due out in May 2022 and pre-orders are available now. Join us next time for an episode featuring neuroscientist and memory expert, Lisa Genova. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning. Thank you.